Well, the 700s BC would have been a pretty crummy time to be a pastor. 700s BC, offerings were down, attendance was down, people were concerned, people were overwhelmed with problems, there was no hope, circumstances were desperate for the Lord's people, for Jerusalem, for the region of Israel. About 722, a guy named Sargon led the Assyrian, the horrible Assyrian army to Israel and devastated everything. In the British Museum, the, the wall carvings depict the conquering of Lachish, the city just south of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was next after that. And the, you see the arrows going over the walls. It was just a, a horrible, dreadful, terrifying, terrifying time. About 20 years later, they, they came again on another great wave and Sennacherib uh, came in and, and invaded and, and reduced everything down to just Jerusalem. It was a terrible time to be a preacher trying to build a local church or anything like that. Of course they didn't. You know what I mean. But if you wanted to become one of the greatest prophets that ever lived, great time. And in that dreadful context comes Isaiah. This giant of the faith, this dear, dear man of God who spoke so profoundly. Long, 66 chapters to the book of Isaiah. Nobody ever preaches through Isaiah because it would take years to do it and you would lose the congregation somewhere along the trail. Nobody ever gets through all of Isaiah, but it's overwhelming. It's a great, powerful message of encouragement that's woven all around the Messiah, Jesus. When I first learned about Isaiah, I was told that uh, it's 66 books and there's a logical break in the flow of things in, in, beginning in chapter 40. So that makes the first 39 chapters like the 39 books of the Old Testament. And the last 27 chapters from 40 to 66, that is 27. It's, it's a very hopeful, messianic, and it, it, it outlines very well. But when you start digging into the books, that kind of breaks down a little bit. Because the early chapters of Isaiah are loaded with the Messiah. And you read about it and you study about it and you sing about it. And Handel has his choruses built around Isaiah. The great, great words of Isaiah. And so we want to look at a familiar text this morning. Uh, but note, just as we move into it, in the days of Isaiah, they were dreadful days. Apart from what this guy is going to say and pass along to you from God, there is no hope. Certainly no hope for your career, for your property. And you wonder, what in the world will happen to my children and my children's children? As for Solomon's great temple, surely the Assyrians won't leave that. These are dreadful times. Hopeless, despairing Days. And in that setting, Isaiah comes. Uh, the prophet of encouragement, but future encouragement. Chapter 9, verse 1, begins like this. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Oh, great. When does this begin, Isaiah? Oh, well, we'll get started in about 700 years. It's oh, not what I had in mind. You and I pray, if we pray, when we pray, we pray for quick solutions. We're the vending machine culture. 
We want to punch a few buttons, maybe even pay a little fee here or there and get results and quick, good results. And Isaiah is talking about something that was seven centuries away before it would even begin. And that would be the beginning. And it would go on and on from there. Yet woven into the prophet's message is incredible hope. There will be no more gloom for who, her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. If you go back to the days of Moses, another 700 years before Isaiah, backing way up the timeline, you know that Moses brought the nation, all those 12 tribes, to the threshold of the promised land and Joshua took them in and with great campaigns they conquered the promised land and then they divvied it up and every tribe got its territory. I don't know how God sovereignly guided toward those divisions, uh, but if you took, and you can do this when you get home, we don't have a map here this morning, but if you, if you went home and you pulled out your Bible and you turned back to those maps, and a lot of you never care to look at because you're not map people, but if you looked at your Old Testament map all the way back to the days of Moses and Joshua, you would find those two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. And Zebulun, if you found their zone, is sort of a globby, roundish kind of uh, territory, not very large, but if you found the Sea of Galilee on the map and you went east, or excuse me, west from there, not very far, you'd find yourself in Zebulun. And if you look for Naphtali, you'd find that it's a long, uh, skinny territory, north-south, and you'd find that it runs right along the edge of the Sea of Galilee. So if you take those two territories uh, from way, way back in biblical history and you move them 1,400 years down the timeline, and you go there, you'd find yourself in the Galilee. Galilee in the New Testament has a definite article. It's the Galilee, the region of Galilee. Jesus is home. Now Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus says, you know, all that de depression and all that, and the contempt for Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, and on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Well, the NIV has it better, Galilee of the nations. Uh, that word Gentiles is where we get ethnic from in English. This means people groups or nations. And Isaiah, this great prophet to the nations of the, the magnitude of God's message, says somehow out of those, the zone, the, the geographical territory of those two tribes, something's going to happen. It's going to impact the nations. Not the tribes, not the nation, but the nations. It will be Galilee of the nations. That will be headquarters, mission central for what God's going to do right there in the Galilee. That was spoken and written by Isaiah seven centuries before Jesus. Astounding. Well, what's the message? Verse 2, he says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Somebody hearing Isaiah says, Oh, we understand that part. For we indeed do walk in darkness. We are without hope. We, we can't imagine. If God is alive, if God is real, we can't imagine where he is or what he's up to. We're in the midst of despair. 
we're just already down to a remnant and it looks like that will go out of existence. Those who live in a dark land, the land, the, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Somebody in the, the congregation listening to Isaiah thinks back 700 years ago when Joshua conquered the land and they divided up the spoil. And you're going to have a farm over there and you're going to have a farm over there and you get all this stuff and that stuff and you just set up and, and we're in the land of milk and honey. And they say, oh, we've read about that. Our grandparents and their grandparents passed along the stories about those glorious days. And, and the temple here that Solomon built reminds us of the heyday of the nation. In these days of darkness, we've heard about that, but we can't imagine participating in that and any of that coming our way. No, it's just it's gloom and doom for us. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor, as at the Battle of Midian. The Battle of Midian goes back to the book of Judges after Joshua. And Gideon's remarkable victory with a small army. And the Midianites were those that fell to, to Gideon. Isaiah's congregation said, yeah, we've, we've read that. We've heard about that. Um, we heard about that from our teachers. He says, every boot of the booted warrior and the battle tumult, the cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire. All that that has to do with war and oppression and all the darkness, all that's just going to be thrown into the pile and consumed because there's a victory, an unimaginable victory coming. And everything that has been against you as the Lord's people will be dealt with, will be dealt with conclusively and powerfully. Oh, if you lived 2,700 years ago in Isaiah's day and you looked around at what was going on and you were told that, first of all, it would be hard to believe. But if you, by faith, could believe the prophet, this great man who has spoken before for God and, and that you want to trust, if you could come to a point of believing what Isaiah was saying there, what a message of hope. And you'd say, oh, if, if I could just live to see that. We got a new president that wants to make America great again. Isaiah was saying, God's going to make his people great again in a way that you can't imagine. It's going to be tremendous. And it's not going to come as a result of some army that Israel's going to raise up. It's going to come in the form of a person. Which brings us to verse 6. The really good verse. The big one. The song about verse. The one that you know, the one that you've gotten Christmas cards about, the one that whether you think of it in terms of Isaiah 9, 6 or something else, this is what you want. Everybody here this morning wants this. I know you do. This is what we yearn for in our hearts. He says, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. It'll be his problem. That doesn't mean we're not responsible and not participating and, and ministering and doing our part. But the weight, the burden of making all God's victory possible is on the shoulders of this child. He's the one who has the power 
and the authority. When Jesus gave the Great Commission and told you to go to the nations of the world with the gospel, and he did through Matthew, when he did that, he did not say, good luck, I hope you're able to do it. He said, I'm with you to the, even, to the end of the age. I'm with you in it. But even before he said that, he says, all authority is given to me. And you can translate, as some do, that word power. In the life of Christ, we make a distinction between power and authority. Power is just, you've got the horsepower, the, the strength, uh, the muscle to do it. Authority means it's, you have the right to use that power in the way that God ordains. And so uh, we have this, this word that, that the government, the management of the affairs of the universe will be on the shoulders of this child. Now, if you're in Isaiah's congregation, you're saying, wow, that's, that's, that's kind of overwhelming. I, I'm not sure I understand all that. I, how, what kind of child? Who is this? And here, woven into Isaiah, as in other parts of Scripture, you have this emerging picture, this increasingly clear picture of a Messiah, someone to expect, who is the problem solver, who is the solution. If you're talking about all these needs and all these challenges, you're thinking in terms of uh, how you solve this and that, and if you can get enough stuff or resource, you can make the bad guys go away. And there is in every human problem, whether it's the, the Russians or the, or the water, all the stuff that's out there in our politics and in our economies, all the problems that are out there, at their core, at the core of that problem is human sin. And unless you address that and deal with that, you'll never solve all those other problems. That's why the United Nations will, will never, I hope that it has success and, and has a good purpose, but it will never solve the ultimate dilemma of the human race because the ultimate problems are problems of the heart or what the Bible describes as sin that separates us from God. This child Isaiah speaks of, this one who will be born to us, given to us as a gift. This one will, will bear the weight of government and the victory will be his. And he'll have a bunch of names. He'll have some incredible names. Now you can take what Isaiah says here and you can divide it six ways. If you're creative with commas, uh, often it's divided five ways. If you sing Handel's Messiah, and some of you have a number of times, some of you could sing it right now if Jeff called you up. We, we're not going to do that, I don't think. But if you sang Handel or you read your King James Bible, you'd find five titles. It's best for balance and symmetry to what Isaiah says. It's best to see four titles. And maybe reword them a little bit so that you put them all four in the possessive and work the word of in there as you describe this child who's coming in 700 years. His name will be Wonderful Counselor. That's the one uh, Handel's Messiah puts the comma in there. He will be Wonderful, that's one name, and Counselor is another. It's best translated as Counselor of Wonder. What does a counselor do? A counselor gives you advice, gives you wisdom, gives you direction for life. And Isaiah says, when this child comes, 
He's going to be off the charts brilliant. He will have so much brilliance. Uh, but it won't just be that he's smart. He will be profoundly wise. If you can read in the days past of Solomon and his wisdom, it will be nothing compared to this. He will be the counselor of wonder, the wonderful counselor. He'll be bringing to us truth at another level. A couple of different Sundays recently, I've referred to the Sermon on the Mount up there in Naphtali on the Sea of Galilee in Tabitha. There Jesus preached and he took all the Old Testament stuff to a higher level when he said, but I say unto you, you've heard this, but I say unto you, but I say unto you, but I say unto you. That was the wonderful counselor up on the rising hill speaking to a gathering of people. Matthew's over there writing it down. Wonderful counselor. Somebody here this morning needs counsel. Truth is, everybody here this morning needs counsel. Where do you get your counsel? Everybody gets counsel from somebody. From Oprah or Fox News or everybody gets counsel from somebody. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. You can get his counsel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul will help you out in your interpretation. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God. How in the world do you solve the Assyrian problem? The Israeli army at this point, when Isaiah is a prophet, is pathetic. It's virtually, by this point, non-existent. They've run out of bows and arrows. And they've got the feeble walls of Jerusalem hanging on. How in the world do you deal with an army that brings 600,000 warriors with steel chariots and all their stuff. How it's absolutely hopeless. Unless the child is mighty God. Jesus is not a prophet. He speaks prophetically, but he's not a prophet. He's the ultimate teacher, but he's not just a teacher. He is mighty God. And Isaiah, speaking of the Trinity of our God affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. When this child comes, he will be deity taking on humanity, never surrendering the deity, the godishness of him, but taking on humanity, and he will be mighty God. He will be omnipotent is the attribute we put on God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit when we talk Theology. He will be omnipotent. There will be nothing beyond his ability unless it's immoral and sinful and he doesn't go there. But anything within the, the bounds of what's right and of, of him, he can do it. He can do it powerfully. Jesus said to his oppressors, don't you know I could call down legions of angels and just blow you guys away? Jesus, this child Isaiah speaks of is mighty God. You need to know. I need to know. We, need, we know, but we need to be reminded on this Christmas morning that our God, our Jesus, is more than a baby in the manger. Our Jesus is mighty God, and he is your advocate. He is risen now uh, to heaven as your great high priest with all the power and authority of heaven. He is mighty God for you, Isaiah says. It's not just that he's out there in the universe doing great things. He is powerful for you and for your family and for your grandchildren and for your country. He is powerful. He has everything you need. He can accomplish it. 
The third label Isaiah gives him, a little challenging. He says, eternal father. And so, well, well, we're trying to get a handle on the Trinity here. We got the heavenly father and Jesus, who's this child and the Holy Spirit. And, and how do you have the heavenly father? And Jesus is now called eternal father. Uh, it's not the name in the sense of the heavenly father. Uh, again, you can uh, rearrange that into the possessive and it, it makes better sense for Isaiah. That's really the way he writes it. Is he's the father of things eternal all in his hand. He is the father of the future. He's the father of the universe. He's the father of all things. That makes a lot of sense with the creation account and John 1 and Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 that teach us that Jesus is the creator God. And everything that's out there, uh, he fathered. He brings it into existence and he providentially presides over it. He's the father figure of all creation because he put it in place. He holds it together. If he ever lets go, Hebrews says it'll all unravel. He is the father of things eternal. And he can be trusted like not just a good father, but a perfect father. Fourthly, Isaiah says he's the prince of peace. And doesn't the world want peace? I've got a newspaper I brought in here years ago. It was my dad's. It's from 1945. And half of the front page is one word going across it. The, just this huge word, peace. This way for you. Peace. It was the end of the Second World War. And my dad, uh, who was participating in that, uh, probably was given that by my grandfather. And he saved it. And we got it wrapped in plastic and preserved today. Peace. That was the goal of all those armies and all those navies in those days. But what you and I want is a peace that, that surpasses just winning a war over your enemies. We want peace in our hearts and our souls where we know things are well with us because our, our spirits are one with God and God's at work. The world wants peace and most of the world doesn't understand how to define that. But in Christ, we know what peace is. And this child... Isaiah says so long before his birth, he will be the centerpiece of peace. Peace will all come down to him and his character and his power and his authority. And it doesn't say it here, but his crucifixion and his resurrection. Isaiah will have to wait till chapter 53 to get to all of that. But in what this child will do, there will come real peace. If your life's in turmoil this morning, you can have peace. Doesn't mean all the problems are going to go away right now for you. But you can have peace in your heart. Not because you, you get clever or somebody bails you out on something. You can have peace through Jesus Christ. That's the promise of this ancient prophet. And Isaiah's congregation is, is probably thinking, well, will he come like soon? Like right away, and if, if he was born tomorrow, it would take a while for him to grow up and begin to do these things. Isaiah, when does this happen? And he said, well, we'll get started in 700 years. You and I, by faith, are called to address the present from an eternal perspective looking back. And in the New Testament age, you and I look back to the cross and forward to the second coming and God's new heavens and new earth and all the things that are out there that the Bible promises. And by faith in those, we can cope with anything that the world throws at us 
right now. The hurts, the pains, the disillusionments, the missed opportunities, the unfulfilled wish list. Peace comes in a person. The person is the baby. There will be no end to his increase of his government or of peace. Now we hear, as Americans, we hear no end to the increase of government. We say, oh, we, we know about that. But he's talking about something better. No end to the management or the lordship of Christ over everything. Jesus' lordship is just going to get better and stronger and increasingly glorious. And Isaiah says, you can look forward to that. If you don't like Hezekiah, if you don't like the government, if you dread the thought of the Assyrian government ruling over you, you know there's a government coming and there'll be no end to its increase and it will bring peace. On the throne of David, now David lived 300 years before Isaiah. So that's old history when Isaiah's referring back to King David. But David lives a thousand years before Jesus. So in between, uh, Isaiah's looking back to get people to look forward to someone who will come. Not David, but someone on David's throne. And the New Testament in Matthew and Luke get the genealogies that show us the connection, direct line, the bloodline, and the crown line from King David to King Jesus. Unbroken, powerfully there, gloriously preserved. Uh, people, the, the, the real heyday of Israel was Solomon's day. If you watch the maps in the back of your Bible or you look at a Bible atlas, uh, territorially, the, the grandest time was under Solomon. The wealthiest time was under Solomon. But for most folks, David's day. That's, that was the glory. Because that's when things were on the ascent and David was loved by the people and he was turning out songs and psalms and all those good things and, and, and people got excited about who they were as a people. And so they looked back with reverence and awe to the throne of David. Some Americans look back to Washington and Adams and Jefferson as founding fathers. And, and in a sense, the Israelites of Isaiah's day could do that. But he said, no, it's better than that because it's not just a political throne. It's a spiritual throne. And King David was a stand-in. He was a type, a forerunner as a man of God and a psalm writer. He was just a, a go-before for the one who's coming for the child. And he'll be on David's throne and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, forevermore. How in the world? Well, Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord, that's in all caps, L-O-R-D, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Uh, that all caps Lord is the name, used to be translated Jehovah's best, Yahweh. It's the personal name of God, Scripture. Yahweh will do this. The God of the Bible will do this. You can't do this. If you all get together and you really cooperate and you give all your resources, you can't do this. But God of the Bible is going to do this. And you will benefit. So take heart. Uh, the Assyrians are not at your doorstep. You may have conflicts. America may have conflicts on the horizon. 
Uh, we're talking about ISIS and all the things of our generation. You may have just matters of the heart that are at your doorstep. And Isaiah says, from 2,700 years ago, Isaiah says to you, take heart. Because the Prince of Peace, the Messiah child, is your advocate. And he can do anything. He is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts will accomplish this. He will take care of your challenges. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning for a Savior so great. And the prophets of old predicted him, and it just confirms again uh, our faith and our confidence in the integrity of your word. And the reassurance that comes to us as people who need to hear from you. I pray that all of us around the room this morning, whatever our burdens are, uh, maybe uh, physical problems, maybe uh, a lonely heart, maybe uh, a sense of grief, a sense of regret. Uh, Lord, we've got all our baggage and we bring it and we lay it at your feet. We ask that the, the child that became the Messiah might be our advocate on high. We look to you in complete faith and confidence, trusting you for our present and for our future. We are grateful for what you have done and what you are doing and what you have promised to do, as Isaiah says, forever. We rejoice in your victory. Do so in the name of Jesus.